So following uh, the podcast I did with my pal Liam, um, we were talking afterwards. He said, you know, a guy you need to speak to is Brad Harmon. He's done a really interesting video on sort of the mental side of the game and some of the struggles uh, that he had whilst playing and following his baseball career. And uh, we went through some channels and we managed to secure the man himself. Brad, thanks for jumping on. Good to have you. No, thanks, Stu. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. So... um, yeah, I think um, now I did I did a podcast during the week talking to Andrew Riddell about college baseball, and I did let slip that I had a psychology degree. Uh, I also let slip that it was really, really paper thin degree. So we're not going to do any sort of um, deep psychological work, but it's a really prevalent topic or important topic. And um, before we really dive into it, it's probably good to give a bit of your background. So. Um, you're an ex-professional baseball player and did time in the major leagues. What's, what's your backstory, mate? How did you um, how did you reach the professional ranks? Yeah, so, I mean, I was basically born into the sport. Um, Dad was, he played and, and coached. Um, so as soon as I was walking, I, you know, had a ball in my hand and um, was playing ever since. Um, so I actually, it's funny, I never really, I never played any other, or any other sport in terms of an organised season. Um, the only other times I would play a different sport would be school days to get out of a day's school. Everything else was um, basically winter baseball, summer baseball right the way through. Um, so it essentially was uh, my pathway from, from birth, um, and I just kind of followed the trend that most kids would. It was really similar, where I just grew up playing through the junior ranks um, was fortunate enough to make a, a few state teams along the way, and then yeah, very lucky to, to be offered a contract and off I went to the state and start playing with the Phillies organisation. So when did you, as a junior, um, when would you, you know, don't want to pump your own tyres up, but when when were you sort of deter, or when was it determined that you were a sort of an elite guy and the professional opportunities were on the cards pretty late in the piece to be fair um i was always i was always skillful um but i was always really small so it wasn't until i was i guess probably turning 16 um that i ran into a bit of a growth spurt. so uh that under 14 area um made the state teams and things and then that under 16 so that first year under 60, I literally just hadn't grown, so I was still the same size as most 12, 13-year-olds. Um, so I didn't represent any state teams then. Um, and it wasn't until I yeah, turned 15, 16 that I ran into a bit of a growth spurt. And it was those last two years, really, um, in the under-18 age group that I, I guess came through and found a little bit of strength and power from the offensive side. Defense was always my strength um just given given my size i guess i really struggled offensively i could i could feel the ball i had decent range i had a pretty strong arm for a little fella um but once the hitting sort of came through and caught up on the strength side of things that's when i really pieced it together and it was really only that final year of junior baseball that it all sort of started coming together for me it really clicked into the final under 18 national championships so we like to really spell out that Signing a professional deal is based on tools and projectability, and you know mm-hmm. there's no professional team looking. Oh, you know, Brad Harmon hit 500 in a tournament. They're not necessarily interested in that. They're interested in tools. You were, yep. you know, my understanding of you as a player, like as you, and as you touched on defensively, there was certainly a tool. What other tools did you bring to the table that made you signable? 
Well, I mean, it's a good question because, and I was had conversations with, um, obviously back in my day during that signing period, um, which was 2003, the country was heavily scouted. You know, there was a lot of Australian-based scouts doing work. And and so I actually didn't receive, I received one offer um, was essentially how that, how that progressed. And I had a chance to ask a lot of the scouts later on in my career. And I said, hey, you know, back when I said, what was it that you, I guess, didn't see in me, just out of curiosity? And they said, well, a lot of the feedback was really the same. It was just the inconsistencies with the hitting. Um, They said defensively it was really no issue. So that was certainly my strength. It was just on the offensive side of the game. I wasn't a fast runner either, um, so I didn't have that going for me. So you kind of, if you've got the defensive skills, you either need to be hitting for some power um, or run. And I kind of, had a bit of inconsistency with the hitting, but that was really the main drawback from the scouts' perspective. So, to be fair, my defence certainly led the way and probably led with um, or led to Kevin Hooker, the Philly scout, in the end making me an offer. That's um, that's pretty interesting because I guess, it's particularly with the sort of with the pro game slowing down a bit in terms of people signing out of Australia, like with that sort of uh, tools package, you might be less signable in this in the right now than you were back then. Is that fair to say or, or, or I've just completely over, overstepped the mark there? I would completely agree with that. In the new, in the new world of the data-driven, um, you know, way of the analytics and how everything is all about projections, current data, future data, um, you know, I, I wouldn't have been a high-ranking guy. And I sort of really saw myself as, like, I was a ball player. Um, you know, I had the had the nous. I, I sort of knew where to be, where to go, um, which is something that I guess was my bread and butter. I could just play the game the right way. All those little one percenters, um, base running instincts and, and those types of things where today uh, it seems to be far more data-driven, launch angle, exit velo, et cetera. Um, so you're right, I probably wouldn't have stacked up in today's market the way um, I was able to sort of come through back when I did. So so I'm, I'm, without going into the absolute details, I'm not guessing, I'm guessing you didn't sign for an absolute king's ransom. Um, did you go into pro baseball thinking, look, I might have one shot of this? Or what was your approach going in as a guy with – you know, only one offer from a pro team and, um, you know, headspace-wise, where were you going into it? Yeah, I mean, I was just trying to, I guess, get an offer. My my path or what I really wanted to do was get into professional baseball, um, particularly at the time school wasn't a massive priority for me. Um, it's not something I enjoyed. It just probably didn't fit or it didn't align with the way in which I like to learn things and I probably – you know, didn't navigate or have the options of something I was passionate about in that learning space. So I, I really just didn't enjoy school too much. So I, I was just scratching to try and find an offer um, to get myself over there. So once I received that offer, um, that process was pretty simple. It was essentially um, my club coach at the time, Matthew Sheldon Collins, who was heading up the VIS program. So I had Matty at the VIS as well as at my local club. And he, he basically told me on a Thursday night that the Philly scout was going to give me a call. Um, it's probably not going to be for a lot of money. I suggest you just take the offer and off you go. And I said, yep, couldn't agree more. So, um, 
that was basically what happened, and Kev Hooker was the was the scout, and, and and it basically was. It wasn't a lot of money, um, and I just said, look, Kev, I, I want to go over and play. So whatever you've got in the budget, um, I'll take it. And he said, okay, great. And he flew over on on the Monday, and we went out for dinner on Monday night and signed a contract. So I just really wanted to get over there and and have a crack throw throw everything at it and see what um see what I could come up with really. So it's pretty remarkable. Like we we don't produce a huge number of um, professional baseball players in the grand schemes in Australia, but there's more than a few guys who signed for pretty much three fifths of bugger all who've actually made it to the big leagues. When you think about how remarkable that is, um, yeah, it's it's kind of about uh, you know just mind blowing that guys can scrap their way to the highest level. So I'm interested to know, um, you know, you show up, you've you had one offer, you kind of got one tool. Obviously, as a probably as a kid, you don't necessarily think that. What was your first experience like when you sort of you land in spring training? What, what where what were your expectations and <laughs> how did they line up? Yeah, so I, I tell this to um, as many people that are listening in terms of the kids that might be preparing for an adventure overseas, and I just make them aware that you know the. For the for the twelve months from signing to heading over there, I was um, you know tall poppy syndrome. I was Mister Confident. And I was ready to go take on the world and you know be in the big leagues within three years. And everything was at my fingertips. Um, and the night before leaving, I was absolutely petrified, and to the point that I was thinking, "Well, who can I call here to get out of this?" Because it all just sort of hit me like what was about to happen. And you know, leave friends and family and head to the other side of the world as an 18-year-old kid. Um, you know, it's a, it's a massively daunting experience and trying to prepare for that, I, I just, I'm not sure you can. And I didn't have, um, I had I had mentors around me, but I, we didn't really discuss that sort of stuff too much. So, look, I went over there. Um, I was really fortunate to have another couple of Australians with me. Um, Mitch Graham, Scott Mitchinson from Perth were also over for their first year as well as Grant Carlson from Victoria. So we had four four Aussies over there with the Phillies, which was a really beneficial experience to have have those blokes with me. But, mate, walking into um, the locker room the first couple of days whilst everyone's starting to filter in, it was sort of starting to hit you a little bit. And then day one of spring training, when you're looking around at 150 blokes and you think, geez, look, I am <laughs> I am a tadpole in the ocean at the moment. So it kind of, yeah, it certainly hits you like a ton of bricks and you realise... All right, there's plenty of work to be done here, which we knew. Um, but just to see that many guys in one locker room, and you think that's one team, you know, that's one organisation. I've got all these guys that I need to work past, essentially, to try and achieve my dream. It's it's pretty daunting. So I, I like to ask anyone who's played pro baseball or college baseball this question. On a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being absolutely prepared and ready, where would you have rated yourself looking back now? I would say somewhere around a three. Yep, yep. And is that was that physically, mental, or what was that? Just everything, or what? What? What are, what are things that you now believe you were you probably could have been better at in getting there? Ninety percent of it. I mean, you know, I had the chance to obviously speak with some of the guys that have been over, so knew a fair bit about, you know, just the scheduling, what it was going to be like. It was going to be hard work. You know, you, everyone sort of says, "Look, it's going to be hard. Just work your work your tail off and, and keep going." And that's kind of, I mean, that's a prerequisite for for any type of success, really. You know, it's going to be hard work, and so I had a good understanding of how 
the place was going to be. Um, I'd, I'd known Grant Carlson, and obviously after signing with the Phillies, I had a chance to speak with him. So he told me a lot about just what the day-to-day running was like, but everything off-field, which is a significant part of your journey, I was completely underprepared for. So just living, and I actually wrote a piece on this a few years back, just kind of to help prepare the next generation for what they're about to experience. And it was everything from finances to um, mental, emotional capacity and the ability to, I guess, seek seek the assistance when you might need it. So just the awareness and exploration to be able to have someone you can talk to and how beneficial that is, which there's far more, you know, I guess, data research nowadays and it's far more common to be able to have those discussions. But everything off the field um, – plays a significant role in your success on the field and I just I was nowhere near prepared for any of it yeah I think that's the that's the bit that particularly young Australians they're just they're just not used to fending for themselves because we've got a pretty for the most part charmed lifestyle in Australia and then all of a sudden you know you're 18 19 and feed yourself house yourself manage a schedule, those types of things, and you just don't get a lot of help or understanding of how to do that until you've um, lived a little. And by that stage, it may have derailed you and, and ended your pro career. So, um, yeah, it's it, there's not many textbooks that come along with um, that side of the game and, and it can really cause problems and challenges um, early in the piece that impacts your baseball. Um, so... To sorry. give you to give sorry to give you a quick example on that one one really big one that I that I wrote about in the piece was obviously you, you paid peanuts and so working out how to even fuel your body and I, I wrote about the fact that particularly in my first year I mean we were living off the McDonald's dollar menu because we could go down and get a couple of double cheeseburgers uh a, you know a chips and a refillable coke for four bucks and that was dinner and it wasn't because we necessarily enjoyed it. It was literally just that was the money that we had because you were trying to survive off $140 for a fortnightly pay um, and you had to cover all your meals plus if you wanted to go out for a movie or, you know, do whatever you wanted. Um, so we're literally professional athletes trying to go out on a baseball field for eight hours a day um, plus gym work, etc., and we're fueling ourselves on McDonald's four nights a week for dinner. So, you know, that's just a pretty small but, simple example to say, well, how could I prepare myself a little bit better to ensure I could have had some money and I could have bought some food that might have been a little more um, in alignment with giving me the right energy to go and compete at the professional level. Well, it's interesting you say that because in recent years, um, some of the some of the teams have made a really big deal about putting on a better spread because, you know, the, the pre and post game spread used to be white bread, peanut butter and jelly as they call it jam as we call it but they've made a big deal about putting on meals and whatnot and you're like well this is your asset why wouldn't you want to take that part which is so important and make it easier for them it's it's kind of mind-blowing that it's still um it's still as sort of stone age like now as it kind of was back then but it, it is slowly evolving but players are still paid peanuts and still um, you know, the, there was a big article uh, recently about Angels players talking about their living conditions where guys are living on sleeping in the kitchen or wardrobes and whatnot. And, mm. um, you know, how do you expect those guys to play at an elite level when they're the conditions? Um, it's just mind-blowing. No, 100%. Yeah. So you start at the bottom, 2003, <clears throat> and by 2008 you've made the big leagues. 
it's pretty fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, can you t- step us through how this all happened and, and you know, the odds of, of you ever reaching the big leagues so slim? Um, you know, why do you think you're able to do it? And, and can you, yeah, I'd love to hear how you got there. Yeah, um, and I mean, my journey was one of, I guess, ups and downs. I, I'd like to probably say, um, much like my offensive <laughs> career, I was, I was always really up and down and inconsistent. And, and I had, but I could put together strings, you know, periods of, um, you know, four to six weeks, which are decent stints where I'd be really, really successful. And if I could sustain that throughout an entire season, I, I have no doubt I would have created. Um, uh, a far greater impact and had more longevity in the game. Um, but I essentially did that from from the start. So in my first year, um, defense was defense was there, and um, I just worked. I worked really hard, which, as I say, is a prerequisite. And I, I guess I just impressed the right people, which I think is a really big part of it. You know, once you can get the right people in your corner, um, it can go a really long way for you um, and how you might progress in the sport. So. You know, I worked my tail off in that first year and I was fortunate enough in my second year to actually um, extend it and I went straight into a, a full season in my second year um, where I had my best uh, offensive year, hit 300. Um, and that was probably the, I guess, the catalyst for me being projected as someone that might be able to push towards making the big league. So um, a good second year. And then in the third year in the Florida State League, which is, Pitches paradise, um, this humidity down in Florida, some just ballparks, and, and I really struggled in that first year. Um, and again, had periods of good success offensively. Defensively, I was a bit scrappy um, between those couple of years at shortstop. I was making quite a few, um, quite a few errors, and then uh, came back to a repeated, repeated high A um, in my fourth year. Um, and they switched me over to second base, which I found a real blessing. It seemed to just take a lot of pressure off. I found the move to be a really simple one, um, and it made life really easy for me defensively going from shortstop. So that sort of straightened out the defensive side of things, um, and I was able to have a bit of success in the second half of the year. The first half, I think I hit like 220, and then by the end of the year, I hit I was up to 280, so I think I hit like 320 in the second half of the year, and that's just... What I mean, the tale of two halves, it was kind of, I just unfortunately was never able to piece it together for a full a full season and then come back and, and repeat it. But that essentially got me, um, that second half really, that three-month block, um, then got me on the 40-man. Um, so the Phillies had to protect me or had to make the decision whether they were going to protect me, which they did. Um, and then essentially from there, what happened was I went to double A and two weeks into the season there was an injury for Jimmy Rowland because I was a protected guy on the 40 man. Um, it was my call. So I kind of got my way to the big leagues that way. It's, a, it's an interesting story because I was hitting 2 to 10 at the time. I was only two weeks into the season, but I've kind of always wondered um, if I had it been a little bit later in the year and had I ended up with the numbers that I did in double A, which weren't great offensively, where I've got the shots and, and probably not, to be fair, um, which is why I think the work ethic side of things, piecing it together at the right time, um, and a bit of timing sort of goes into many, many people's journey. And I think it's no different from myself, just continuing to show up and look, an opportunity arose. And, and fortunately, I was the name that got called out to go up and experience that, that short period in the big leagues. 
So you hit the big leagues, um, and then it looks like kind of sort of by 2009, the, the, the run's over. Um, and that that's kind of where you and I kind of chatted off air about the mental side of the games and, and when things really came into focus from you about the importance of, you know, the mental approach and the impact of um, – you know, the impact of failure on, on players and, and how they deal with that. And I guess that sort of segues into really what we want to talk about today, which is the just the, the size and the impact that the mental piece of the game can play on, on baseball players because it is a game of failure. And, you know, I've never met someone like Mike Trout or someone of that calibre, but every very successful baseball player I've ever met has – this weird level of confidence and just sort of this un, unshakable uh, belief in their own ability. And it comes across as arrogance for the most part, but, you know, the number of times, you, you know, I've, I've, I've been on the on-deck circle and a guy's punched out on three fastballs, pro guy, and walked back to the dugout. I said to him, what's he got? And the response has been, he's got nothing. And you're like, he just blew you away. But it was just this belief that, I'll get him next time. It's no problem. And so, yeah, I was really keen to, I suppose, touch off with you is sort of when did, when did the mental side of the game come into focus for you? When did you realise that the mental health was, you know, either holding you back or impacting your performance? How did that all take shape? Yeah, and, and firstly, I mean, you need that you need that level of confidence, which um, will always come across borderline arrogance. It's a, for me, I think it's an absolute prerequisite that you've got that belief. And I, I remember many times doing exactly the same thing as what you just said, or a guy might punch you out and you walk away, and go, oh, next time I got you. You know, you've just got that that belief that it's gonna you, you're gonna get them, and you really need it. Um, but for myself personally, it was it was after the. After the call up to the big leagues, um, and so I knew. So I was back in Double A, and you kind of you go back down, and it, it, look, there's a certain aura that you now hold, and um, you've always looked up to those guys that have been able to go up and experience the you know the joys and the highs of playing in the big leagues. And so now, having done it, um, you're certainly a role model for the other guys, and they want to ask questions and talk to you about it, and it fuels you and drives you and you want to get back there. Obviously it's a childhood dream. Um, so, you know, one of the hardest things to do in baseball is make it to the big leagues, but the hardest thing is to stay there. Uh, I found that out. So I knew that obviously I wanted to get back there and wanted to make a career out of it. And that's when it really, um, I guess, started to struggle. And so the pressure and the, um, I guess the anxiety I started to feel around performance and piecing it together, I knew I had to, I guess I knew that I was in a really good place in the organization and all I had to do was put together some half decent numbers on the field, which is what baseball is all about. It's, it's all about the numbers. And if I could just produce to a, to a half decent level, I'd be back in the big leagues at, at least in September. Um, if not earlier, if there was another injury and having that, I guess, um, that expectation now and having experienced it, it all just started to compound on me. And then, you know, a bad, a couple of bad games sort of led to a hang on, mate. You've got to get this turned around pretty quickly because you need to be ready for another call and then another couple of bad games. And then it sort of hit panic stations pretty quick. Um, and it just, it just compounded from there, as I say, into the, to the point that I was 
you know, I was in a cage every night on my own for an hour after every game. He'd be off a tee, um, doing different things to try and work it out and, and then struggling to fall asleep at night, getting up a bit groundhog days to the point I was trying new mechanical things, um, which I was so inside my own head trying to, to say or trying to, I guess, find the mechanics. And in, in hindsight, when I was doing that and going through those times, I was forgetting to do the simplest thing in the sport, which is just watch the baseball. Um, so during during that period of trying to find the mechanics and then, you know, I recall every time I would go out in my first at-bat, I'd be lost because I was like, well, that didn't succeed. I literally, I was giving new mechanical changes one at-bat to succeed because I, I thought it was a time clock on everything and I thought I had to turn it around like now, immediately. So um, that that pressure was just ridiculous that I was placing on myself and to be, I just wasn't giving myself a chance at any form of success going with it, with that mentality. So you say you weren't sleeping, like just lying in bed in your own dome, kind of replaying, the, you know, the sky's falling? Or like, what, what did that look like? So it'd be replaying at that, um, and then it'd be thinking about the work I was doing in the cage afterwards, and then it would be thinking about the next game. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was plenty of times when I was still laying in bed with my eyes open and the sun was coming up, you know, so we, we get home at kind of 11, 11.30 by the time the game's finished, and my and standard standard procedure would be get to sleep at sort of 1, 1.30 maybe, um, you know, wake up at 9 or 10, go to the field at kind of 1 o'clock type thing, that's Everything's a bit later given the 7 o'clock game time. But, yeah, there was plenty of times that I was still uh, awake at 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock in the morning, and then I'd sort of get to sleep and get four or five hours sleep, get up and go to the field and do it again. So you talk about setting yourself up for success between nutrition, recovery. Um, yeah, I was, I was nowhere near it. And that that wasn't a sustained period, but there, there were periods um, of that for, you know, a week at a time and then, I was able to taper it back and start getting to sleep at three o'clock and four o'clock. Um, but yeah, it, it was certainly a battle. Yeah. Wow. That's, uh, it's just not the optimal conditions to succeed. So the, the, it, was there anyone to talk to or was, and I suppose like mental health has really come into focus in recent years and this is 2008, 2009. It's still pretty primitive when it comes to those types of things. Like, did you feel you could talk to anyone or you just kind of like, I'm on this, this is me, I've got to figure this out? Or where, where what, did you have anywhere to go for help? Not, not readily available that I thought at the time. So the, the club had um, a, a ripping fella by the name of Dickie Knowles who liked to, he, I think, I guess he was kind of like the welfare guy. So he played in the big leagues for quite a while and he found himself in um, some substance abuse issues um, towards the back end of his career and then he was able to clean himself, um, get himself clean and then has worked his way into that mental type of a role and I think now he's actually gone through and done uh, psychology studies and he's qualified in the field now. So he's the type of individual um, along with others that they've got today. But he was around at the time but as you say, it kind of, there was always the mentality that this is a business, the best will find a way Um, and if you're not one of the best, you're one of the 60 odd that get cut from the herd every year. You know, you think about 
the draft coming in and the amount of people. I mean, it's pretty standard for a pro ball team to have 120, 130, 140 transactional moves every year. So you just, you're meeting guys like every other day, it seems like. And you just kind of feel like this. I can't raise this. Like I need to just work it out, figure it out. And I reckon a couple of managers at times had discussions with me just to feel it out and see how I was going, but it was never to that depth um, to really find out or, or for me to feel comfortable enough to have a discussion about it. And at one stage, the minor league on-field coordinator took me out for lunch. He had a bit of a discussion with me and, um, he was certainly reaching out to try and find out, but I just, I don't know, I just wasn't in a position where I felt safe enough emotionally to, to discuss it and, and have a chat about it. So, And that was one conversation with him that we had. So, yeah, to answer your question, I didn't feel comfortable enough to even raise it or, or really where to go. Yeah, I was, I only ever, and I was certainly no mental giant when it came to playing baseball. Um, I had so many superstitions that I started to forget my superstitions, which then caused problems. Um, but I was fortunate enough to play college baseball. And it's just, there were days where I just kind of, all I needed was the coach to say, mate, well, they'd never say mate because there's, they don't say cool stuff like mate, but just needed a coach to say, you got a week, dude, just keep going. Like, you know, you're so worried about, the next game and the next day and yeah sometimes you just need someone to put your arm around you like you're okay just keep plugging away man and 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 it just isn't it's it's a man it's sport and it's men and you just people don't do that or they didn't do that back back then and oftentimes that just that reassurance can free things up and allow you to just play um and i think that's the thing that's quite fascinating to me particularly you know we were just talking offline. We've both got kids and, you know, you watch junior sport now and the coaching is really positive. There's lots of hand, you know, clapping. And mm. I know you know, there's lots of jokes about everyone gets a participation medal, but some of the best coaches I've seen with my kids are people who don't say a word during the game. They just grab the kids privately and pump their tyres. And you think about that and you think, geez, I would have performed so much better if someone was just pumping my tyres instead of telling me, oh, that wasn't a great swing or you screwed that up. And I think, um, yeah, things are evolving, but, particularly in professional baseball, as you said, everyone's competing. So why, you know, it's, it's the quick of the dead, the cream rises to the top. And I'm really interested from your perspective is like, what, what were big leaguers? What were the really great players able to do? Like, how were they able to do it? Yeah, good question. I mean, you, you need a couple of things. I mean, obviously, the, the talent is is next level um, at that level, and the ability to be to be consistent. But I mean, the talent pool, like you know, it's so small. Those guys, like, and the guys that we think of when we talk about the successful, like, they're so rare. You know, it's the same as any um, elite sport. But what well, the average the average big league career is a couple of years. Um, there's not many guys that go on to have that sustained success. But you look at everything and there's just, there's a different makeup, there's a different body type, there's a strength that not many, um, not many others possess. There's obviously the confidence, um, but there's no doubt the support network. Um, But see, I look at it from a couple of different points because I know plenty of guys that have had these unbelievably successful careers and what they put to the side to be able to work and and achieve that dream. And then we look at, um, take the, the documentary Broke, for example. I like to reference this a lot because you've got the EPL soccer players and NFL players um, and how many are broke within three years of finishing 
you know, their sport. And you just kind of think, well, what was your psyche? What was your mindset like going into that? What did you sacrifice and how did you get there? Um, and then within three years, you've gone and blown all this money on, no doubt, all this materialistic lifestyle. So it kind of gives you, I think, a little bit of an insight into what makes a lot of these people successful. It's an unwavering desire and drive to be the best. And I think it's important to have that, but it's just as equally important to have balance in our lives. And um, I think that those guys that can have the sustained success at the elite level of sport, but then go on to to live a life where they're contributing back and adding value to others' lives is is significantly important. So um, it's probably an equal part of the conversation to have when you're looking about the successful athlete is those that go on to have a really balanced lifestyle. And and they're probably the ones that you talk to, which are, you know, they'd be rare as hen's teeth, but they're the ones I'm interested in personally to, I guess, hear their stories about how they balance things throughout their journey. Mm. The other area that I've always been fascinated and never – actually never thought to ask someone. So you sign as a young bloke, everyone's, you know, well done, mate, good on you, go get it. And then every year you come back and, you know, like there was this kid, there's kids who like, I don't want to play baseball when I'm back in Australia, which is always, I was like, why wouldn't you want to do that? Like just keep playing. You're like, well, hey, it's a grind and maybe you just want to take some time off. But but also just once you've signed, there just seems to be these unbelievable expectations from the Australian baseball community and like did you feel pressure when you came back to australia and and or, or is that something that i've just imagined or is it there and, and if so what sort of impact did that have on you no it's certainly there um and it's, it's all the way down to you know because your your local club that you were playing for they kind of they expect you to come back and contribute you know and add value to their team which i guess you know you get it um but they're probably just not understanding the journey that you've been on either so yeah, look, I, I certainly felt the pressures to come back and contribute, but I was one that always loved to do it. Um, you know, but you talk about coming home and a bit of that tall poppy syndrome. So you've got the pressure, but you've also got the admiration. And the the real issue with that, talking about the mental health aspect, is just that we start living in that world of external validation and looking for it. Um, so it can be a real double-edged sword in terms of that, that gives that elite player for confidence, you know, when everyone's looking how good, um, how great are you, can you come play with us? And it's really it's really fantastic and it's good for the confidence and the self-belief, but it all sort of hits a road at some point in time when that's no longer there and you've never really learned to drive that internally. Um, it's always been there for you externally. So, yes, the pressures were always there to, to come back and play. For me personally, though, I, I enjoyed it and I wanted to play, so it was never too big of an issue for me. Mm. I want to jump to sort of the sort of the end of the baseball career and something to touch on there, but we'll get to that in a second. But if you had your time again, particularly from the mental side of things, what would you have done differently? I think I think learning a lot about what I know now, and I've you know I've been able to dive into a lot of this space um, really in the last four or five years, which was essentially to understand what was going on for me back then. So, not necessarily to understand it the way I do now, but I think having the capacity to uh, to be fair, just have someone that I could be going to and speaking to on a regular basis who. I guess created that safe environment. So we talk about a psychologist or a therapist. And I'm a big believer now that I don't really 
think it matters what facet of life you're in. Um, I think we all should have that person, that that therapist, that psychologist, whatever modality you think um, works for you, and, and you you know you try many different ones, but once you find that person, I just think having that to be able to bounce off your thoughts and feelings and get some emotions out and have some of those conversations, I think that would be where I would start is just having that line of communication and that, that freedom to have some really honest, open, safe communication about where I was at to, I guess more than anything, it's just to bring awareness um, to the current situation. And once, as we know, once you can identify and become aware, it sort of takes a huge load off and then we can just realize that we're not these unique individual with all these battles and demons and we're, we're actually quite common with the next person. So that would be my biggest thing. Now, does that go-to person mentor, do they need to be able to help you hit the slider or is that just a, just someone who's, you know, baseball does may not even factor into it? Like what's your take there? Yeah, I, I don't think it has anything to do with baseball. Um, yeah. To be honest, I think you've got the resources over there from a baseball perspective and, and not that you'll always see eye to eye. I didn't really get along with my hitting coach, for example, at Double A. I just kind of didn't really agree with the methodology that he had um, and that was just my personal personal take on it. But you've got baseball resources out the wazoo when you're over there. So it's certainly from that, that mental aspect and the life aspect that I think is, yeah, more key. And I think, you know, I couldn't agree with you more in terms of just having a safe person that you can talk to and unpack a lot of this stuff with. But it, it does play into that challenge of you getting paid peanuts. So how do you allocate the very small amount of money you have if you have to pay for that person and because you, you can't find someone you can do it with for free or the love of, of you? Um, you know, how do you balance where you're allocating your resources? And that's another challenge for particularly minor league baseball players where you just don't have a lot of cash in your pocket and you've got to figure out where to spend it. So, um, yeah, it's really um, – I, I don't. yeah, I, I think it's such an under – you know, like younger players that you start to see now, they're doing more work in the gym and strength and conditioning and they're, they're tuned into nutrition and, and recovery, but still the mental side of the game is probably the piece that's – lagging behind from what I have seen in my kind of diving back into the game in recent times. What what are you seeing from that side of things in terms of player development? Are people putting the effort into that piece of the game or is that still behind? Yeah, look, to be fair, I'm, I'm essentially just really getting back into it now um, after three or four years off. So it'll probably take me a little bit to really see the landscape. But, you know, we could probably just going off what you were just saying there, and I could probably double back to what um, we look at with the big leaguers and the elite. And it's interesting because, I mean, baseball's a business at the elite level and we kind of, we don't really want to look at it that way. We want to romanticize it, the fact that it's a sport that we love. And but the simple fact is it's a business, but I think, those guys at the elite level, they kind of treat it that way. And so if you're a business owner and you're trying to grow your business, what's the first thing you're going to do with the funds you're generating? And it's reinvesting. And so that's what these guys do. I mean, when I was up there, I was speaking with Raul Labanez and he, he tells me he really wanted to make sure he got up in the morning and took his kids to school. That was something that he wanted to do. So he only got four hours sleep. But what he would then do is after he got home, he had himself a hyperbaric chamber that he would go sleep in for three hours so the three hours sleep he got in that was the equivalent of eight hours sleep so he was crushing his sleep crushing his recovery but again he had the funds Mm. to be able to invest in that type of machinery to be able to satisfy 
what he valued, which was spending the time with his family. But he was reinvesting back into himself to be able to get himself up to peak performance. And I think that's the way, you know, the kids need to really be looking at it. The money that you get from your signing bonus, it's, yeah, it's nice to put it away and put a deposit on a house and to buy a nice car and to do all this stuff, but you need to think about yourself as the brand, as the asset, as the business. How can I reinvest or set up a five-year plan to reinvest this money into myself with the SNC, with the mental health, with the, the player development skill acquisition? How can I manage my funds appropriately that I'm reinvesting in myself to give myself the best opportunity to go on and make a sustainable living in the future? Mm. Yeah, I think uh, certainly words to live by because we've we've all seen guys who've signed and, yeah, the next thing you know, they're rolling around a really pimped out car and you think that's not going <laughs> to feed you when you get over there. Um, I've got a couple more questions for you. So I, I, the bit that I'm also interested in is what was – and you touched on it, the, that sort of external validation, but how did you find transitioning out of I'm a pro baseball player to – I've got to get a job. I've got to get back to real life. You said you've been out of the game for a little while now and you're just getting back into it. What like, what was the transition back to real life like for you and, and, and how did you find that? Yeah, it, it's really tough. It's really tough, particularly um, for someone like myself who was able to taste the big league life, I think, because there's, there's certainly a notion that if you have talent, if you're good enough, you get everything given to you to a degree. Um you know, so when you when you come home and, and no one's no one's giving you anything, no one's offering you anything. You kind of you, you're an average Joe. You need to go to work. Okay, what qualifications do you have? Nothing. I'm a pro baseball player. Well, great, but you know, can you do what else can you do? Um, it means squat. You know, it means absolutely nothing. And so the reputation of being an athlete and it, it shouldn't count for anything. Um, you know, it's time to hit the real world. So. It's a real challenge from that perspective to go switch lifestyle um, and realize that you've got to start again because you feel like you've just been on this journey and you've climbed the ladder, you've put in all this hard work, and now you've just got to start again um, and try and find a path. And there's many different ways to, to take the conversation because the next part is, what, what am I going to do? And we always kind of try to find something that lights us up the same way that our sporting journey will. And I think we need to realize pretty quickly that we'll never really find anything that lit us up as much. Um, that'll always be the number one. And, and that's okay. I think we can find something that's an equivalent to it or, or not too far from it. But the sooner you can come to that realization of you're not going to go to a field every day, it's going to be something different. And that took me, you know, quite some time to, to figure out. So, um, it's a tough transition and just realizing, okay, I'm starting again now, which, which is totally fine. But again, it actually, what I'd like to say on it is it's kind of like being in that tough grind of trying to figure it out that day. I think for a while I thought, well, I remember thinking as a 24 year old, well, I don't want to start studying now because I'm going to be 29 by the time I finish my schooling. Mm-hmm. And it was like... Now, you know, 35, 36, and I'm thinking about doing some study now. You know, we kind of want everything to happen really quickly. So just realizing we need that plan. We need that five-year plan of what am I going to set myself up for? What interests me? What's my passion? What's my, where can I add some value? And then just really setting out a plan and following a process to get there. So you've said you, you're sort of just getting back into baseball now. What sort of what capacity are you working in the game and, and what sort of 
where do you see yourself going within baseball? Yeah, so I just picked up a, um, I mean, for the past few years I've been coaching, uh, doing some fielding coaching within the cricket space. So that's something that I really enjoy. Just It's fresh, it's new, um, it's a completely different dynamic and something that I really enjoy. It's, it's all new information for the guys I work with. So really enjoy that. But um, so literally most, a week ago I just wanted to Sorry, sorry, cut you off. <laughs> most cricket players can't throw, so you'd look like a superstar walking around there <laughs> with a solid, solid right yeah. arm. <laughs> there's a few, yeah. There's a few. There's some challenge, and there's um, yeah. There's a couple to work with, <laughs> um, but yeah. So uh, in the yeah, just about a week ago, I got announced as the Melbourne Baseball Club head coach um, over here in Victoria. So look, just about to get back into the coaching side of things um, at club coach level, which I'm I'm really I'm super excited about. We've got a a really good young group of kids down there. Um, who are willing to learn and, and willing to listen and put in the work. So I'm pretty pumped to be back involved at Clubland. I'm just hoping that with everything going on in the world at the moment, hopefully we can open up here pretty soon over in Victoria and get a season started. Mm. So I kind of wanted to wrap up with, um, you know, when we talked off air as well, it's like something that you're really keen to get involved in and sort of working with, mentoring, providing advice to young players. But, you know, like if you could give advice to young aspiring college or professional baseball players, like what are a couple of key pieces that you'd, you'd like youngsters to take away? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's something that I'm, I am, I'm super passionate about it given my experiences and my challenges. Um, and I could talk for days on it because the, the lessons are endless. And I think there's certain, certain value to understanding that a lot of kids, including myself, we, we kind of, we might receive the advice, but, we're going to still think that we know it. Um, we still think we've got it covered and we're still going to go out and make our mistakes and, and learn from it that way, which I think there's, there's certainly tremendous value in, but I think I probably could have just avoided a few pitfalls, um, you know, by having some of the mentors in that space that was able to really tackle some of the mental demons. So, you know, for me, my advice is to find find that support team that you can have that that liaison with, have the conversations with to be able to unpack some of the stuff you're going through. And, you know, I, I think there's great power and strength in a lot of people that have gone through that journey um, and found those people they can discuss. They just realize how how beneficial it is to, to have those sessions, have those conversations. Um, you know, the next part is, as I said before, I think just using yourself and understanding that you need to reinvest and you need to find a way to, to make that that little bit of extra money to invest in in yourself, which is, it is mental health, it is strength and conditioning, it's all these components, it's having enough money to, to buy yourself some decent food when you're overseas. So really understanding what that's going to take um, to set yourself up when you go over there and just realizing that you are forever reinvesting in yourself and don't expect things for free. And, you know, if that's the way, and that's the way I looked at it for a long time. I thought if you were good enough, you were getting things for free and we let the ego get in the way a little bit. So um, realizing that no one owes you anything. So you need to keep working on it. You need to keep reinvesting. Um, and then the next one or the last one, I think is just be a good person, you know, contribute to your teammates. If you can really unpack yourself in a way that allows you to add value and teach the guy you're playing alongside, which is a really a real challenge in professional baseball when you're battling the guy next to you to go up to the next level. If you can find it in yourself to 
teach him. I think the best way we learn is when we teach. So if you can be that teammate that's pushing for pulling for your teammate, helping him out, it's it's only going to be beneficial for you and your success as well. And, and the sooner we realise that, I think the better off we're going to be. That's a very um, that's a very salient and interesting last point you make because I think everybody views professional baseball as a, as a cutthroat. Um, you know, cut pro, cutthroat profession and sport, and sometimes just being a good bloke kind of can engender additional levels of support or understanding. And I think, um, yeah, just sort of being a good person can give you another chance or a better opportunity. And I think that's it's really undervalued. So I'm really glad you called that out because it makes so much sense, but it's so often overlooked. Um, Brad, I really appreciate your time. It has been super insightful and, and fairly candid. Um, probably love to find a way to, through our platform, start you know connecting you with players who may kind of be about to go on this journey and um, you know might need some advice. And, and we'll figure out a way to, to link you up and, and, and make it meaningful for everyone. But uh, thank you very much. I'll let you go. And uh, we'd love to have you back, mate. Much appreciated. No, I appreciate it, Stu, and yeah, that'd be fantastic. I mean, anyway, I can help the next guys going through, and, and just for, for reference, I'm, I'm probably no different than most others that have gone over. We, we'd we all love the opportunity to have a chat with the next um, generation of kids, so for you young guys out there um, that are looking at, at heading over, don't please don't feel afraid, scared, shy of, of asking one of the older guys that's been there and done that for a little bit of, uh, bit of advice, because... I know for a fact we're all more than willing to have a chat and um, give you some of our insights. But, yeah, I would love to do that. Um, Stu, thanks so much for having me. And absolutely, I'd love, love to come on whenever you, uh, whenever you want me back. Thanks, buddy.